It is with a great deal of pleasure that I introduce to you a man whose uh, intellectual uh, achievement, I think, is unparalleled in our time, and who, on top of all that, is an awfully nice fellow, Rene Girard. When I come here, Gil says, uh, oh, you don't have to do anything, you know. <laughs> you just improvise and so forth. And then, after such a build-up, you know, <laughs> one feels a huge uh, responsibility, you know. Uh, first, I should say something about him. I think the amazing thing about him is that he did not end up in a university. See what I mean? And it's your good luck. If he had ended up in a university, he'd be, be like as, us, as corrupted as the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's not. He's, he's, he's totally different. But uh, when I speak to a group of people such as you, I feel my position is a little bit ambiguous. Not that it is not ambiguous with scholars, you know, because scholars feel that my business should be to talk to people like you and not to them, <laughs> that I have nothing to do with scholarship. But when people like you hear me, they feel that my business is really with the scholars. <laughs> and uh, I'm not quite the sort of fellow, you know, that can really deal with concrete problems. One of my problems is that I'm very interested in religion, and I have no doubt that my interest has repercussions on daily life, on the religious crisis in which we are. But I feel I'm not quite competent to deal directly with the concerns that people have, you know, in their lives. Because my approach to Christianity is uh, through other religions. Uh, the Western world is a very strange world since we are the first to have created a worldwide civilization, you know, civilization in which communication today is instantaneous uh, in the entire world. But it has been that way since the great discoveries, discovery of America and so forth. It's been a one world. In other words, a world in which religions have always been in contact with each other and have destroyed each other. Very often, force, imperialism, we hear a lot about that today, but also because the comparison of religion is dangerous to them, makes people aware of their similarities, you know. And I really think that the great religious crisis in which we are today, which is very deep, very profound, but which goes way back to the 16th century, to the Protestant Reformation and even before, is tied up to this problem of uh, how similar, how different religions are from each other, which is absolutely basic for Christianity, since Christianity is, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. You see what I mean? Therefore, Christianity is greatly accused today for being 
intolerant for claiming a superiority over all religions, which is unwarranted. Behind this feeling that it is unwarranted, there is the idea that all religions are sufficiently similar for no religion to be able to claim any fundamental superiority over the other ones. Therefore, there is the question, which has been with us really since the Renaissance and even before, of the similarity between what one calls myth, primitive archaic religion, and Christianity. You know, even great modern scholars of religion, when they tell you that certain things have become unbelievable in Christianity, they invoke science. People like Bultmann, I don't know if you talk about Bultmann here, but if you don't, you, maybe you don't miss that much. <laughs> <coughs> you know, so Bultmann said, you cannot believe in certain things in the day of the automobile and electricity or something like that, which is a very naive statement and a very European statement. too. Because in Europe, for some strange reason, which in my view is mythical, the opposition between science and technology on one hand and religion on the other has been stronger than it is here. Here, religious faith and science have coexisted, in my view, with less problems than in Europe. But Bultmann is not really talking about the automobile and the electricity. Because, or not even uh, science fiction and uh, travel between planets, you see. Because when he says what we when he talks about what has become unbelievable in Christianity, he uses words like demythologizium, you know, to demythologize. Therefore, there are parts of Christianity which are mythological. What does that mean, you know? I think that the meaning of it is, uh, is definable. And the meaning of it is definable and as soon as you define it, you reach what is most central in Christianity, which is the passion of Christ and redemption, which is the relationship between the violence inflicted to Jesus and the notion of redemption. If you look at great myths, the Oedipus myth, you know, and so forth, you will see that in major myths, you have a central violence which is followed by an epiphany of the God, revelation of the God. And very often, in many primitive cults, the God is, dies every year and is resurrected, like in the myth of uh, Isis, Osiris. You know? And you will see that it's true all over the world. It's true of sacred kings you know, who are killed and reborn. So... Ultimately, even if we don't know anything about myth and primitive religion, we live in a world where we are all conscious, more and more, I think we have become through the centuries, of the similarities between myth. And we tend to say religion is mythical. Uh, Christianity must be uh, mythical too. Therefore, it, has, it cannot claim, you know, some kind of... Uh, superiority over other religions. 
And this view, you know, became dominant really at the end of the 19th century when the anthropologists, modern anthropologists, brought onto the market the intellectual world, you know, all kinds of dying or already dead primitive cults from all the countries which were being explored and uh, known at the time. You see, and sometimes the, the defense of Christianity vis-à-vis the religions one could call modern, surviving religions in our world, Judaism, the Muslim religion, Hinduism, maybe, Buddhism, religions or not religion, was, well, Christianity is the only one to have a God who is killed and resurrected. And the only religion in which God is not only all-powerful, but instead of being totally uh, a God of majesty, you know, was the only one to have a God who suffers. In the 19th century, this was one of the ways of defending Christianity. That's why when suddenly the primitive cults and all these men appeared, in which you always had a dying God who is resurrected. You see, the effect was enormous, really, at the end of the 19th century. People don't remember that today. But it's still with us. People felt at the time that there was going to be a theory of religion which would be like Darwin in biology, which would say so much about why people have all these religions which are alike, that it would show that Christianity is only one of them. One archaic religion among many. You find this argument all over the place. For instance, I was reading not too long ago people like Eli Wiesel saying, look at the sacrifice of Abraham. This is the end of human sacrifice. Shift to animal sacrifice, which is quite true. Therefore, Christianity is regressive in relation to these religions because in Christianity, the real son is killed as if it were a sacred African monarchy. Or as in Sumer, you know, where the king where the, 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 the king was yearly reviled and an object of contempt to everyone, then was more or less reborn, you know, and recovered his uh, power and everything. So this is the normal pattern of myth. I would say all myth is like that, deep down inside. There are many myths which have been so transformed that violence is is not collective, as it is in the case of uh, Jesus. You see, nevertheless, I think through the passion, you can see the centrality of that theme in mythology. And this the Christians have always been afraid of. Because they have reasoned exactly like their opponents, which is always the case in intellectual struggles. They have thought, even though they didn't say so, we have to show the originality of Christianity. The originality in the modern sense. What is it to be original? As an artist, as a writer, it's to show your writing differently from anyone else. You invent new subjects. You say things which no one had said. You paint things which no one has painted. You see, you find harmonies or disharmonies that have never, no musician has ever tried. So the Christians have been very embarrassed by primitive uh, religion when it showed up on the scene. 
today this problem seems to be gone because people say all religions are different from each other. Each one has its difference. I embrace my difference. You embrace yours. We are multicultural and so forth. But this, so we have no such problem anymore. And all this comparative religion was Western imperialism, trying to understand everything which should not be understood anyway. Let all hundred flower blooms, like President Mao said. You see what I mean? And every religion has its little precinct. And Christianity should become aware that it is one religion among others. You know? And live in peace with its neighbors. All the progressive churches in liberal Protestantism, first in the 19th century, in the Catholic Church since Vatican Council, if you look at what they say, a certain notion of ecumenism, behind it, deep down inside, you have this view that Christianity is just as mythical as any other religion. You know, If you look at it strictly. You see, so... I'm very, very interested in that because I don't think it's true at all. And I think one can demonstrate that it is not true. But in order to demonstrate that it is not true, far from fleeing the similarities between mythical religions and Christianity, one has to meditate them and in a way emphasize them even more than they have been emphasized so far, you know? And one thing to do is, if you really look at traditional Christians, you know, they detest all comparisons. And to them, for, for instance, the passion is absolutely unique in all respects, including as violence, which is very strange, since the passion is crucifixion, which was the most common way of killing people in the Roman Empire, you know, the, the way of executing the worst kind of criminal, therefore which could not be unique. But the Christians, in a way, in reaction, instinctive reaction through this idea of originality, have tried to show that the passion in all respects must be totally different from other religions, which of course is not true. And anthropologists were right to say not at all. And as a matter of fact, from a Christian point of view, if you start looking at the Gospels, you will see that it's not true at all, that the Gospels say the very reverse. Je when Jesus says, I will die like the prophets before me, what does it mean? What does that like mean? You know? And I think what I'm talking about now is connected in a way with another attack against Christianity which is the idea that Christianity, that the Christians not only have been anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic, but that the Gospels themselves, by saying, I will die like the prophets, in other words, the Jewish people have been preparing to kill their Messiah because they are a particularly ferocious people, but this business about dying like the prophets has a, strict, a value which is strictly limited to the Jewish world. If you start looking at the text, you will see it's not true at all. Because you have sentences, as you have in the synoptics, which, which talk about all the blood which, has been, which is going to fall back on this generation, which has been shed, all the blood of the prophets, beginning with Abel the just, 
all over the earth since the foundation of the world. So the since the foundation of the world means much more than the Jews. Abel is not a Jew. And all over the earth means more <clears throat> than the Jewish world. In other words, what the Gospels are talking about there is that the passion is like a certain type of violence which is universal and which is there since the foundation of the world. This universality is in John too. The words are different, but the meaning in my view is the same. The meaning seems so strange to us, you know, that we feel it's totally rational, but I don't think it is. It's the devil was a murderer from the beginning. From the beginning, from arche, the beginning in Greek, means the same thing as the foundation of the world. It doesn't mean creation, but it means the foundation of the first culture. It means the death of Abel. If you look at the uh, uh, story of Cain, you will see there are two themes in the story of Cain. There is the death of Abel, and there is the uh, creation of the first culture, because Cain is the founder of the first civilization on earth. And if you look at the text, you will see that these two things are one and the same. That in order to found the first civilization and the first religion with it, you have to kill your brother. In other words, I don't think that Cain is a myth, but Cain tells us the biblical conception of myth. Myth is a story in which you kill your brother and a religion and a society is founded. In other words, if you see this, you see that the passion is infinitely close and that Jesus himself tells us that there is a series of murder beginning with the foundation of the world all over the earth, which cannot be only the Jews, which are like the passion. You see, so that like the passion, what does it mean? And I think in order to see what it means, you have to compare the death of Jesus to some of the death of the prophets in the Old Testament, which are very close. For instance, the suffering servant in the second Isaiah, you know, which is a very beautiful thing. And when people look at it, especially some of the Jewish scholars, they say it must be the model for the Passion. Because they realize it's very close. So they say maybe the authors of the Passion invented the story of the Passion. And they copied the suffering servant, because he's surrounded by crime and uh, he dies unjustly, like Jesus, and many aspects. But if you look at the text, you will see that there is a great similarity between the two, yet it's very hard to pin down immediately, because not one detail is the same. And in order to understand what to die like the prophets mean, there is another way of doing it which is going to the New Testament itself. Because in the New Testament, you're supposed to have the last of the prophets. His name is John the Baptist. And what does he do in the Gospels? He dies. What sort of death he dies? A collective death, or a collectively inspired death, like the Passion. Very different from the Passion, since he's decapitated. Nevertheless, is it a death like Jesus? Yes. And you can see why. It's a death which has one instigator, Herodias, just like uh, 
in the Gospels you show, you know, the religious authorities, the Sanhedrin and so forth, who are plotting the death of Jesus, but they had never been able to bring it about before. And what is specific about that death? It's the crowd. It's the crowd that gets together suddenly, you don't know why. Three days before, they had received Jesus as a hero. And the guest at the banquet of Herod had no reason to be against John the Baptist. But suddenly they all get together and they ask for the head of the victim. A victim they have no particular reason to hate, which is what the gospel says. They hated me without a reason. But it doesn't happen to Jesus only. It happens to John the Baptist too. Why does it happen to John the Baptist? This is the strangest thing, you know, and Luke was probably a little bit scandalized by that since we have the death of John the Baptist in two of the Synoptic Gospels, but we don't have it in the third one, you know. Luke says, enough about Herod, now let's concentrate, let's focus on Jesus. Why does John the Baptist die this death? Which is the instrument that gets the people to ask for the head of John the Baptist? It's Salome. Our name is not even in the gospel, but it's a dancing of Salome. You know, many people feel it's a little bit scandalous to have that scene in the gospels. And what does that dancing do? You know, if you look at dancing in the Greek world, which is what tells us most, it tells us dancing is the most mimetic of all arts. And it's always, you always encounter it in sacrifices. Dancing is what gets the participants together against the victim. It unites them against the victim for no good reason, of course. For a reason of spirit of togetherness. The madness of the crowd. Feeling good about oneself being part of the crowd, like Peter does when he denies Jesus. This inability we have to stand alone and we have that necessity in which we always find ourselves to follow the crowd. He's responsible for the death of Jesus, but also of John the Baptist, of the suffering servant, and so on. And probably of all the victims behind all religions in the world. Therefore, if you follow this text, you can see that it is also an interpretation of myth. Men have religions because they cannot stand alone. They get together against victims. You know? And somehow, if they are really united with each other, they end up reconciled by their victim, feeling better. Even after the passion, people feel better. And Luke, who tells us all sorts of interesting things, takes the time to tell us something which is unrelated to the resurrection, but which is an effect of the death of Jesus, which is immediate. He tells us from that day on, Herod and Pilate, who were enemies, became friends again. This is a direct effect of the death of Jesus. Is it a Christian effect? Doesn't look too Christian to me. (laughs) It even looks pretty satanic to me, this reconciliation against Jesus. So what is going on there? What is that type of death? You know, which we have in the Passion, in all the prophets, 
And unquestionably, according to the gospel, Satan was a murderer from the beginning, meaning he was a murderer from the beginning, but he kept being a murderer. He became specialized in this type of murder, you know. Satan is the founder of human culture. That's what it means. Human culture is the work of Satan. There is a lot of disorder created by Satan, and then Satan expels himself. That's pretty weird. That's why Jesus asked the question. It's one of the most important questions about culture in the Synoptic Gospels, and I guess it's in all three. How can Satan expel Satan? This question is not there to make you doubt that Satan expels Satan, but to show you the paradox of the force of disorder in human affairs being also ultimately the force for order. When people become so mad at each other, so beset, you know, by rivalries and everything, that total disorder show up, shows up, you know, ultimately they'll gang up against the victim and become reconciled against that victim. They'll find what we call today in our language a scapegoat. So, you see, the Gospels are even closer to myth than we thought before. We're really at the bottom of the pit. Because what I'm saying here is all pagan religions ultimately are divinized scapegoats, the gods. Why divinized? If you have a problem, you know, such as the crisis I'm talking about, and finally you become united against the victim. You project all your problems on that victim. This is transference of a much more efficient kind than anything the psychoanalysts have ever talked about. To find the right scapegoat at the right time. This is two-thirds of political wisdom anyway. Maybe nine-tenths. <laughs> Unless you find the right scapegoat, you know, you won't have. Like today, we don't have the right scapegoats. We have too many of not at all, and that's why we are in such a mess. You see what I mean? But if you find the right scapegoat, ultimately your problems will be solved. Well, in the ancient world, the system worked, but it worked much better because it was religious. What does it mean that it was religious? It meant that if you had suffered enough from some crisis and suddenly the scapegoat solved your problem, these people were much more modest than we are and much more humble. And they said to themselves, how could we be the authors of our reconciliation? We tried many times and we couldn't do it. Who could it be? And the only individual they can turn to is their scapegoat. He destroyed us first, or he warned us that we were bad, and then he saved us by dying. Therefore, A, Religion is a divinized scapegoat. He's all-powerful for evil first. He disrupts the community. And then he's powerful for good. Take the Oedipus myth that we all know. He committed parasite and incest. He caused the plague. You expel him, and you have no more plague. Therefore, he ends up as a minor divinity of what? Marriage. That's typical myth. The villain who transgresses the law 
and is punished for it, ends up as the God that sets up the law. Even though it doesn't fit logically. But that's the way a myth is. You have a transgressor, he's punished by the whole community, and he becomes the God. Look at Dionysus, look at... This is typical. So, if you see this, you look at Christianity, and you say, Jesus is a scapegoat, obviously, more visibly than anybody else. You can see it because it's described in an extremely graphic and, uh, uh, what should I say, realistic way. And ultimately, he ends up as God. But is it the same thing? To a scholar, it is the same thing. How could it be different? Completely different. Because the scapegoat is divinized insofar as he is guilty and therefore has been punished rightly. Whereas Jesus, you know, the whole crowd is ready to behave towards him exactly like in a myth. They think he's guilty. But the Christians are not the people who accept this universal view. They are the few dissidents who say he's innocent. Therefore, if he's innocent, how could he be divinized as a scapegoat? He's divinized, but not as a scapegoat. And I will say he is divinized because he reveals the whole system of ganging up against the victim, which is the system of religion. In other words, in my view, Christianity is the inversion and the revelation of all other religions. If we are able to speak about scapegoats, if we are able to condemn the people who persecute victims unjustly, it is because of Christianity. We do not realize how unusual that is. We live in a society which is able to say that a man who is condemned by everybody, universally regarded as guilty, nevertheless can be innocent. We have a feeling this is perfectly normal to think that that the whole community could be wrong about a victim. We don't realize that it's a purely biblical and Christian affair that has never existed in any other world. We live in a world where we see that victims can be victimized wrongly even if they are by the whole community. As a matter of fact, today it's become our principal business, which is very often abused. But we don't realize this is an exclusively Judaic and Christian phenomenon. And in my view, the reason for this, it's because Judaism first, to a certain extent, and Christianity more radically, reveals the scapegoat system of culture reveals that culture is entirely based on gods that in fact are arbitrary victims that have been destroyed by the whole community, like Jesus. But Jesus is presented as such. And in 
the Gospels, we don't talk about scapegoats because scapegoat means guilty. But there is a word, an expression that replaces scapegoat much better and that we should use every time we say a victim has been condemned unjustly, but we don't use it because it would remind us of Christianity. And it is the Lamb of God. The scapegoat is that goat which was covered with the sins of Israel by the high priest laying his hands on it. And in a way, everybody believed it. And the scapegoat was driven into the desert, and we never heard. In Christianity, the scapegoat is replaced by the Lamb of God. In other words, the victim is innocent. In other words, the God is no longer the God of violence and evil, but exclusively a good God. Because all primitive God, and even in part the God of the Old Testament, are gods of violence and peace. They are gods of peace because they are gods of violence. They are gods of violence because they are gods of peace. There is always an endless exchange between these two things. Only in Christianity proper there is no such aspect. And God is the Lamb of God, the victim unjustly condemned. So in my view, the revelation, in a way, in order to reveal the scapegoat system of culture, Christianity goes through the same sequence of events. But the founders of Christianity are not this total community, you know, that lives in the delusion that its victim was guilty, then saved them as a culprit, like Oedipus. Therefore, is that God of violence and peace, but that the victim is totally innocent and reveals the injustice of human culture. A much more difficult world a world which has a relationship to culture entirely different from that of other religions. And that at the same time, a God that can be most easily confused with all these other gods. And if you look at the great biblical stories, you will see that they are all critiques of mythology. In order to make myself clear, I will take an example. I will take the Joseph story. The Joseph story is way back in Genesis. It's at the end of Genesis, but we know it's a very old story. You know, and if you look at the Joseph story, you will see that in some respects, it is the same story as the Oedipus myth. We have a child. And he's accused of being a danger to his family. Oedipus is accused by an oracle which announces that he will kill his father and so forth. And uh, Joseph has these dreams, you know, that make him the future ruler of his 12 brothers. And they are pretty mad at him. As a result, 
In the Oedipus myth, the parents get rid of the child. They think they are going to destroy him forever, but in fact he ends up in another city, in Corinth. In the Joseph story, Joseph is uh, sold into slavery or discarded or something. There is a place in the text which is a little confusing and mixed up. But anyway, he ends up like Oedipus in another city in Egypt, you know, and abandoned by his family. In the second part of these stories, the uh, outcast, the outcast son, becomes a very important fellow. Oedipus becomes the king of Thebes, and Joseph first becomes the intendant of Potiphar, you know, who gives him all power over his possessions. And in both stories, you have an accusation against this hero, this character. And it's an accusation of the same type because uh, Oedipus is accused of uh, becoming the husband of his mother. You know, he's accused of one of his sexual crimes, which you find all over the place in mythology, and of killing his father on top of a bargain. And Joseph is accused of making love to the wife of his quasi-father, Potiphar, by Lady Potiphar. And then in the third part of the story, you have the same thing once again, because, uh, well, the, the hero is connected with a great social scourge, the Theban plague, in the case of the Oedipus myth, the great drought of Egypt, in the case of Joseph. But in my view, the real question in both texts is, is the hero guilty? Is he guilty of being a threat to his parents? Is he guilty of having slept with whomever it is he shouldn't sleep with? Is he guilty of being responsible for the social scourge? And in the Oedipus myth, the question is yes. He's guilty of, he's a danger to his parents. Yes, he slept with his mother. Yes, he's responsible for the Theban plague. Therefore, he should be expelled. He's guilty, 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 guilty on all counts. In the Joseph story, the question to all these questions, the answer is no. No, it's his brothers who are jealous, who are telling all sorts of stories, are dipping his tunic into the blood of a goat to make the father believe, you know. No, he has not slept with Lady Potiphar. It's Lady Potiphar who tried to seduce him, and he resisted Gloriously. <laughs> no, he's not responsible for the, the, the drought. On the contrary, he's the inventor of modern storage business economy and the stock market and everything. And he saved the Egyptians instead of destroying the Thebans. Therefore, he should 
be exalted and praised. It's the Gentiles who believe that nonsense, not the Jews. In other words, if you look at the two texts, you have a feeling that even though the Joseph story is a story, is not theory or philosophy, what the Joseph story tells you is people like Joseph or Oedipus are scapegoated. Not one time, not twice, not three times, four times, all the time. They are always expelled. And it's a lie. And the proof that this scapegoating is really the subject of the Joseph story, which it is not in the case of the Oedipus myth. When I say to my fellow scholars, the Oedipus myth is a scapegoat story, they say, show me the scapegoat. But I say, when there is a real scapegoat, it doesn't show. Everybody believes he's guilty. You see what I mean? If the text tells you the scapegoat is a scapegoat, the text is not built on scapegoating. The, ste- the text is a denunciation of scapegoating, which is what the Joseph story is. There you see the scapegoat. In the Oedipus myth, you don't see it because it's really a scapegoat text generated by scapegoating and which remains generated by scapegoating like all archaic religion. And the proof of what I see is the last episode of the Joseph story. Because in the last episode of the Joseph story, Joseph is sitting on that huge pile of grain, you know, in a world which is entirely destroyed by starvation. And all his brothers are with the father in Palestine, and they say, oh, you know, in Egypt, they say they have a guy who will give you grain because they have some and so forth. So they all go to Egypt. But they don't take their last-born, Benjamin, who is the only real brother of Joseph because the father, Jacob, had two wives, and his favorite wife was only the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. So since the disappearance of Joseph, Benjamin is the favorite of Jacob. So the 11 brothers leave, and they leave Benjamin with Jacob, you know, because Traveling was dangerous in those days, and they don't want, they are nice enough to their father, they don't want anything to happen to Benjamin. And they get to Joseph, you know, with the prime minister of Egypt, and they don't recognize him because he's so well dressed, so they are terrified, really. And Joseph recognizes them, of course, and he gives them grain, and he says, But don't you have another brother, or maybe two? Uh, so they said, well, we had two, but they don't want to talk too much about that. And um, they say, yes, we have another one, Benjamin, you know, the youngest born. And we didn't take him along because our father is very old. And if Benjamin died, if we die, well, too bad. But if Benjamin died, you know, he would die too. So Joseph says, if you're hungry again, and if you come back, be sure to bring Benjamin with or this second time you won't get anything. So they go back, you know, they tell the story to their father, and they eat all the grain and so forth, and after that they are hungry. And they try, you know, not to go back, but finally they are so hungry that they go back. And Jacob himself tells them, bring Benjamin with you. It's better to, you know, to die a a violent death than to die this slow death of starvation. You go back to Joseph. So they go back to Joseph with Benjamin. And Joseph recognizes them again, he recognizes them again, and gives them grain. 
Then he has them all arrested at the border and searched. And he himself has directed his servants to place his precious cup into the bag of Benjamin. And he complains loudly that it's been stolen, and probably by all these brothers. That's why he has them search. And when they find the object in the bag of Benjamin, he says, I keep him, and you can all go. You're free. He's testing them. He wants to see if they are do going to do again to Benjamin in circumstances a little bit similar what they did to him, Joseph. You see? And uh, what happens then? Ten of the brothers are ready to go. But the eleventh Judah, who according to the story, is the ancestor of Jesus. Judah says, no, I cannot stand this, you know, because my father, take me instead of him. I prefer to be the scapegoat, you know. So Joseph is very touched by that, and he acknowledges all his brothers. He's, it's enough for him that one would not repeat the scapegoat process for him to forgive all of them, you know. So it's a very beautiful story. And it's an anti-scapegoat story, obviously. And what is proved is that even though men are very bad, sometimes there is one out of 12 or out of 100 who is less bad, who is ready to do something, you know. Now, traditionally, the Christians have seen this as a prophecy of Christ. All the scholars find this enormously funny. You see what I mean? How could it be? <laughs> Absolutely no connection, and so forth. But the connection is obvious. The connection is obvious because Jesus dies his scapegoat death in order to do away with all scapegoat death in order to reveal scapegoat death. Therefore, he's doing exactly the same thing as Judah. He's preferring to die instead of a scapegoat. So, of course, if you interpret prophecy in a very naive way like the Middle Ages did, it is true that it is not a specific allusion to a certain individual in a certain text in the future and so forth, but it's the same situation. And Judah behaves like Christ in the Gospels in the sense that he's ready to be a scapegoat in order to do away with scapegoating, which I think is the real meaning of the act of Jesus. You say, why should it? Well, why should it do anything? Because the death of Jesus is written in the Gospels not as the Oedipus myth, but as the story of the Lamb of God. In other words, as the story that tells you the truth of scapegoating instead of telling you the lie, brings it out in the open, which is what people don't see. If a text brings out the scapegoat in the open, and certainly it's out in the open, they all hated me without a cause. In the Gospel, you no longer have a scapegoat story. You have the revelation of how the scapegoating works. 
which is the reason why we are so concerned with it in our world. But the Oedipus myth will never teach you that. Because only the Gospels reveals to you that behind the Oedipus myth, there is the same process as in the Joseph story, but a process which is hidden because it works. And therefore, it creates the text. It generates a a text in which the culprit has really, really, between quotation marks, killed his father and so forth. In order to interpret the myth, you must break it apart, not respect its themes, and say it's exactly the same thing as witch hunting in the Middle Ages, a myth. When we see the trial of a witch in the 15th century, she's accused of that sort of thing. And everybody agrees. Sometimes she agrees too. And the judges too. But we say, no, no, it cannot be true. Because this type of accusation, parricide and incest that caused the plague, we don't believe in that. Well, we still believe in it. We believe in it as far as the Oedipus myth is concerned. Because we haven't learned to see that the Gospels should teach us to treat mythology as if it were a witch hunt document a witch hunt slander. We don't see the witch hunt slander in all mythology, but we are seeing it in our own history since we don't read witch trials. You see what I mean? So what I would like to do, what I think I'm trying to do, is to bring the process of Christian revelation one step further by showing that what we do on witch hunting in the Middle Ages, you know, scapegoating of the Jews here and everybody, uh, someone else there, we should realize that myths are documents of scapegoating, which have been treated as sacred things, and therefore we do not realize that they are what they are. And therefore, in that way that the Gospels are a unique document, because they bring about that undoing of a fundamental cultural lie which is present in all these myths, in all archaic religion, and which is always there as long as you don't denounce it. Which is there, therefore, in my view, behind philosophies, you know, and all type of thinking which does not question the basis of social thinking and of the unity of the community. Therefore, I think that many of the problems we are going through, you know, and the perpetual revolution that the Western world is, is connected to the work of revelation in our world. The presence of the work of revelation in our world has nothing to do, nothing to do, and it did, but is no longer a question of faith. It works its way in the questioning of these things, even if we pay no attention to the gospel. The, the, the poison has been introduced in our system and is slowly disintegrating the satanic system of human culture. I speak a little too dramatically here because there are extenuating circumstances. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
But nevertheless, you see what I mean? You see how I need questions here again. You see how I'm getting to trying to show that Christian revelation has something to do deeply with what is happening in our world, which seems to us, and in many ways, is something something bad, something difficult to experience, something painful, which is uh, our cultural instability, our problems, you see what I mean, with cultural instability. And there is much misuse of the Christian revelation in our world, precisely because it works its way through us very often in non-Christian way. Nevertheless, I think our cultural problematic and the problems of our world and the way we conceive human relations and the changes in its conceptions are all entirely dominated by the slow working through of this revelation of victimage, scapegoating of its role in human culture. The other day at Stanford, we were talking about a text in Corinthians 1. First mm. Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 2. two. <laughs> you know, which is a very strange statement of Paul, which is if the powers of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, what are the powers of this world? The powers, principalities, and so forth are defined in the Acts in a very strange way. They are defined as being united against Jesus, being all participants in his passion. This is not a historical statement in my view. It is true that the powers which were present in Palestine, the Roman power, the Jewish religious authorities, gang up against Jesus. And Luke, for good measure, adds Herod because he's a power. I think it's a more general statement. It's a definition of the powers. The definitions of the po- definition of the power is those who gang up against Jesus. It's mad. No. It means that they are defined by the type of murder that I told you is like the passion. That they are defined by this collective murder. It's another definition of culture. The powers of this world is a very strange notion because it's partly very concrete, you know, it's a worldly affairs, and there is something spiritual. When the gospel says celestial powers, it means exactly the same thing as the powers of this world. They have a transcendence of their own. It's not the real one. It's a scapegoat transcendence. It's a transcendence of Satan, I have to say. That doesn't mean they're all bad, because they're only way to keep order before Christ. But they are defiant. So the powers of this world have crucified the Lord of glory, because it's their business. That's the way they regenerate themselves. That's the way they are born. That's the way they exist. And it's still true today. So why, if they had known, they would not have crucified the world? What they did not realize is that by crucifying the Lord of glory, their secret, the idea of a secret of Satan, you know, sounds magical, but it's not. It means that the scapegoat business, which is the union of the community against the victim, which is revealed in the gospel, 
is what dissolves the power once people realize this unity is not based on solid judgment, you know, conviction, but on mimetic influencing, on a crowd effect, a mob effect. You see what I mean? Therefore, if the powers of this world had known, they would not have crucified the, the, the Lord of glory because by crucifying him, they exposed their main trick, the trick of Satan. That's why the power to, powers today have been even more, even trickier than before. But it's a very delicate affair. Now the powers of this world are always for victims. They are defenders of victims. They are the greater defenders of you see what I mean? Or oh, they try to be. And uh, they make a big mess out of our world. But nevertheless, they cannot fool us. They can fool us less and less. And they were fooled. The idea, you see, there is the idea in the early church that they are fooled by the passion, which has never been explained and which I think can be explained in the way I told you. Because the real question is whether the scapegoat foundation of culture is really true or not. And uh, this is a purely biblical and Christian affair. So in the case of Buddhism, you have the same view of victimization and so forth. And you have also in Christianity the idea that the victimizers to a certain extent, are not guilty. Because you have, it in, you have it especially in Luke. You have it in Luke, you know, and I read in one of my books, um, the phrase of Jesus, O Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, I said this is a definition of the unconscious of the persecutors. So some people laughed and said, oh, you know, he's really ingenious. But uh, that's too much. You see what I mean? But if you go to the beginning of Acts, which is by Luke, too, or so we think, and this is one of the reasons to think so, um, we have Peter addressing the crowd of Jerusalem and saying, you don't realize what you've been doing. You've been killing the Lord of glory. The you know, but you were ignorant and even your leaders were ignorant. In other words, however cynical Pilate, Herod, and all these guys could be, they were ignorant of the main thing. Therefore, the scapegoat process is unconscious. We do not know that we are persecutors. That's the main thing which Christianity tells you. And that is the reason, in my view, why the first two Christians, the experience of scapegoating, you know, is one which no one has. You cannot write the phenomenology of scapegoating. Phenomenology is when you bring back everything to the experience of the subject, the deepest experience of the subject. Who has ever experienced scapegoating? Absolutely nobody. Asked the whole population of the United States or France, you know, have a poll and say, is there scapegoating around you in the professions, in law, in business, as well as oh, politics? 100% yes. Ask exactly the same people. Are you a scapegoater? 100% no. <laughs> Everybody around me is a scapegoater. 
That's why the denunciation of scapegoating can become and does become, that's absolutely essential to our society, that the denunciation of scapegoating has become the main scapegoat accusation. You cannot accuse anyone without accusing them of being persecutors. That's why people like Nietzsche were right in being in a way nauseated with Christianity. But he saw the caricature and he did not see the original. Because the question is whether it's true. You see, and I think the symbolism of Christianity is just so unbelievably powerful in respect to that. So how come, how can we see about scapegoating? The, the, the Gospels never tell you that the disciples were more intelligent, more lucid, you know, or that they realized Jesus was innocent because um, they had seniority in the Christian business. They all succumbed to scapegoating. Because when Peter denies his master, he is the model archetype of all mankind. It's not a personal indictment of him. It's That's the way men are. Therefore, the experience of scapegoating, there is only one type of people who experiences it. It's the experience of conversion. Christian conversion is nothing else. That's why Paul, Peter, really converts when he understands he has denied his master. As for Paul, it's so obvious. The question of Christ to Paul is, why do you persecute me? You see what I mean? And to become a Christian is to discover that one is a persecutor. And this, I think, is the absolute radicalism. The fact that most Christians have not understood that historically is, must not be turned into an accusation of Christians and Christianity. Because just as in Buddhism, sacrificial phenomena uh, of the worst kind reappear all over the place, including Tibet, uh, Sri Lanka, and so forth, as they may. Nevertheless, they are much lessened in uh, relation to the past. And the question is not measuring people and the sociological influence that one religion may have had and another. It's to question the texts. And the thing which is so powerful about Christianity is the definition of the main words. We think that Satan is ridiculous. You know, there's not one theologian in the world today that dares mention Satan for fear of being ridiculous. But if you look at the opposition in comparison of Satan and the Holy Spirit, you understand everything. The original meaning of Satan is the accuser. He's the accuser that enforces the accusation that makes Oedipus seem guilty. Now, the meaning of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, seems so strange to uh, Jerome when he translated the Bible that he didn't dare translate it. He invented a Latin word, paracletus. And so we have in English paraclete, in French paraclet, and so forth. Why no translation? It's the simplest word to translate, and some Bibles translate it. The paraclete is the lawyer for the defense. Satan is the prosecutor, as in Job, and he convinces everybody of guilt, and that's myth. And the paraclete is the lawyer for the defense. In other words, if the disciples turn around and become that small group of dissidents that say it's not true, 
it's not because of their intelligence or anything. It's because the paraclete is there. That's what they say. They don't brag about anything. They say it's a paraclete who is speaking through us insofar as we denounce this persecution. Because I think there are two types of totalitarianism in our world. You know, they are both essentially connected to Christianity. The first type, which in a way is the most honest, is neo-paganism, which is after Nietzsche. We don't want any of this business. You know, this is sickness. A society has to be able to sacrifice. Nietzsche, the last Nietzsche, says that very explicitly. It's been expurgated. No one talks about it because it's too close to Nazism. And everybody says Nietzsche has nothing to do with Nazism, but I think Nietzsche is the real philosopher of Nazism in the highest sense. This totalitarianism says we are going to kill so many victims that we will prove to you that the, the significance of our culture is not the end of victimage. And we are going to reinstate paganism. In my view, all forms of neo-paganism, very innocently at times, do the same thing and want to cancel that out. The other form of totalitarianism, which is in the ascendancy because the first one is gone, is overdoing it. You have to remember that communism, all forms of totalitarianism of the left, are the failure of Christianity to, to abolish and all religion to abolish scapegoating, and we have the better way to do it because we know it's a social phenomenon, because we know it's a psychological phenomenon, as the psychoanalyst will tell you, because we know it has something to do with race. You know, there are certain races that don't scapegoat and others that do, and uh, so forth. You see what I mean? So, in a way, it's the super-Christianity that communism tried to be. And I think we, were, we are going to see other forms of it, which might be infinitely worse than what we have seen in the past. But today we are, I think, living this, the failure of these attempts at replacing, doing away with Christianity, or turning it into some form of ideology by, uh, you know, uh, appropriating it in a certain way and exaggerating it in all forms. We are all aware of the failure of many people to make the efforts that they should. But at the same time, our society, I think, would have perished long ago if there were not a tremendous amount of implicit understanding of what we're talking about and of acting upon it. You see what I mean? In the sense that our society is still going on and expanding every day. And however badly and so forth, opening up all the time. You see, opening up in ways which create new problems and so forth. But, but I think, uh, to go back to your idea uh, I, I don't think I'm an optimist, but I think that the type of world in which we live, we don't realize enough how fantastic it is. You see what I mean? We talk about disenchantment of modern world and so forth, but at the same time we don't realize that there has been... Cultural relativism is true in relative ways, but in a certain way our society is absolutely unique. It has a form of universalism, and a form, even the people who 
do not appreciate its opening and want to close up and so forth, always do it in full awareness of what they are doing, which no society in the past did, and in full awareness of the arguments against, and um, in full awareness of what they say is rejected by many other people. And very often, very often they do not quite believe what they say. But to say how much, I think, is, is impossible. Yes? Well, there are two ways to be original. You know, I criticized earlier the modern conception of originality. We're going to say, we're going to do, we're going to think something entirely different from other people. I think only a hyper-mimetic world obsessed with not imitating, can come to such a point. Therefore, indirectly, in my view, this concept, the modern concept of originality, which is, was born with Romanticism, in a way testifies to the mimetic nature of our world. Imitation, mimesis, and so forth, is the bad word par excellence in our world, in, in culture. If you bring it in, it's like... Uh, doing something disgraceful, not being polite. You see what I mean? Only originality. So, there's another notion of originality, which I think is more profound, and which is not really mine, because, which is going back to the origin and changing it. What Christ is doing is going back to the bad origin, which is violent, and making it not non-violent by suffering the violence willingly instead of inflicting so this origin will not be immediately will not immediately change everything, but will slowly act like that transformation I was talking about and changing our our world in a gradual fashion, which is I think what is happening today, faster and faster. I don't know if I'm answering your question. Yeah, well, today, if you want, if you take the most, uh, the greatest violators of human rights, you know, they always speak the language of uh, the opposite of what they're doing, which the Romans would not have done. If you had gone to a Roman Pontius Pilate, you know, or any Roman functionary, and told him, I've been victimized, therefore I have rights. He would open big eyes and would say, are you a Roman citizen? You see what I mean? But he would not even understand, he would not even laugh. He would not understand at all what you're talking about. Um, So we live in a world, in a way where today, even the powers have learned that you must speak the language of victims. You see, and very often you speak it half sincerely. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is not the same thing as lying. There is the truth, and there is a lie on the other side, and maybe there is hypocrisy in the middle, when you believe your own lie. And uh, I think most people believe their own lies. Most people are sincere. You know, sincerity is the cheapest 
good in the world. <laughs> Only our enemies are insincere. But we all are always sincere at all times and have never been insincere, really. You see what I mean? So it's the same thing, again, as the unconsciousness of, uh, of scapegoating. It's always a question of turning back against oneself. We are also the world of self-examination. You see what I mean? We are often criticized for that. We are pre- presented precisely the idea of Nietzsche that our culture is sick. It's because of self-examination. And being the son of a Protestant minister, he saw Protestantism as the arch perversion of that, uh, you know, Christian, the most perverse form of that Christian sickness, which is constantly asking oneself if I'm doing the right thing. And undoubtedly, there are aspects which may become neurotic and so forth. But fundamentally, it's the greatest thing in the world. And today, no one dares defend it. It can be corrupted in a certain way, but a society in which people are able to ask this question is infinitely better than any other in the past. You see? And today we come to the point where we do not dare say this anymore. That uh, regardless of how bad the perversions of that principle are, it is the greatest principle in the world. And there is no doubt that no form of paganism will instill that into you. Yes? The way I think the New Testament has to be read is closer to Talmudic Midrashic interpretation than anything else. You know, because in order to see this, you have to give some examples of it, you know. And I don't know it as well as I do. But uh, I remember one thing which enlightened me greatly about the sacrifice of Abraham, you know. Sacrifice of Abraham is a non-sacrifice of Abraham. In Jewish terms, the binding, the uh, Abraham, the Akedah, you know. And finally, Abraham, you know, finds the ram, which is caught by its horns in the thicket and sacrifices the ram. Now, there is some Midrashic Talmudic comment on that. Oh, no, I'm afraid I'm wrong. But it doesn't matter because it's the same style. And that shows I can be ecumenical. What I'm saying <laughs> is in the Koran. It's in the Koran. But Mahomet, you know, in a way was a Talmudic interpreter. You know, in the Koran, there are these words which are very strange. Which says, the ram which was sent by God to Abraham is the animal that Abel had sacrificed. Abel was a sacrificer of animals, whereas his brother Cain, Cain did not sacrifice for So, you know, you see this and you say, how mad this is. But if you think in terms of sacrifice, you understand very well. Abel does not sacrifice his brother because he sacrifices animals. They are a substitute for man. And this is the same thing in the case of Abraham. Cain may be one of these people who think you can do away with sacrifice immediately, you know, without going through the historical stages. And therefore, he ends up killing his brother. Therefore, the idea that the animal is the same means the animal has the same function. 
in uh, both instances. But this is very much in the style of certain Jewish comments, you know. Uh, for instance, I, that's another example of, that had impressed me. Uh, I see mimetic rivalry is present behind all discourse on sacrifice, all the great scenes of sacrifice, you know. And still, the question of Abraham, there is a Jewish comment saying that uh, while Abraham and his son were climbing Mount Moriah, supposedly to have Isaac sacrificed, the two servants who were there, who were the favorites of Abraham, were fighting each other, being mimetic rivals, about who would become the inheritor, the missing son. You see what I mean? So this comment puts mimetic rivalry there, which doesn't seem to be there. And that I find absolutely marvelous. You see what I mean? The sense that it has to be there, because uh, that's what sacrifice is about. But of course, you have to go through... uh, You know, it's never theoretical. It's just... So I would say we have to understand these things better because usually they have a profound meaning in terms of human relations. And this is what the philosophical Christianity of the Middle Ages or today, they don't understand that these things are always meaningful in terms of human relations, which means ultimately in terms of love or hate, which brings you to prayer. It's less important to interpret the text than ultimately to love your brother. But if you love your brother and if uh, you enjoy reading text at the same time, which is not very important, but and so forth, you probably have more of a chance to give ultimately the right interpretation, the charitable interpretation, as the Christian would say than if you hate your brother. Because if you hate your brother, you have something in your eye, some scandal, some obstacle, which prevents you from seeing the truth, which is John, which is very Talmudic too, in many ways. Well, I don't really think it has a revelation in a Christian sense. I think it's a different historical stage. My you see what I mean? I, but I'm not, I don't know enough to pass judgment, you know, and one should be sure to avoid judgment. But I think that the Christian revelation in the sense of the passion, in a sense, is, is once and for all. It's there, you know. And I'm sure that in the Koran, there are aspects of it which are taken into account. And... Uh, that's all I could say. You know, I wrote my first book on uh, mimetic design, mimetic rivalry, which is, I'm a literary critic, fundamentally. I was trained as a historian, but I started to teach literature in this country, and I didn't know what to do. And uh, I looked for what make, made the great novels similar to each other, rather than different. You know, according to literary criticism, 40 years ago, the important thing was originality in the sense that I don't like. Trying to show that each book says something entirely different from all the others, says it in a different way. You know, the aesthetic viewpoint that I cannot stand. 
And instead of doing that, which you had to do then, which you still have to do today, but you look for different things. I was interested in the psychology, what people would call the psychology of these novels, and I felt that it was the same always, that it had what I call that mimetic rivalry, that there were always people, lovers, for instance, choosing the same lover, not because of the object, but because, they, because jealousy came before love, in a way, or envy. That's what I call mimetic desire. You imitate your model, but if you both imitate each other, you will desire the same object. Philosophy has not seen that. Philosophy, especially with Plato, has talked magnificently about imitation, but has excluded imitation from and, and desire, has separated the two. You see, and I think that the great tragedies, the great novels, the great literature always put the two together. If uh, my last book was on Shakespeare, because I think Shakespeare is the greatest, that the greatness of Shakespeare is due or can be defined at least up to a point, because you cannot define the greatness of Shakespeare, of course. The fact that he sees this, you know, friendship and hatred are one and the same in Shakespeare. The two friends who, in a flash, becomes the worst of enemies. Because suddenly, as always, they desire the same thing. And most of the time, to be two friends is to desire the same thing. The same books, the same pieces of music. To love the same thing. But suddenly you love the same woman. And it doesn't work the same way. You know, and no one warns children that this is going to happen. Because we live in an enlightenment world where we are supposed not to see these things, to deny that they exist, to say that man is good. And that man won't get in trouble unless the bad capitalist or the bad communist make them bad. No. If men desire the same thing because they imitate each other, there is a principle of conflict in human affairs that we cannot dispose with scapegoating. We cannot say it's some bad people who are responsible for that. We all do it. And if you speak of that to adolescents today who have never been as unprotected as today, because today the voices of cultures tell them constantly the opposite of the truth. Be yourself, be all, be, do what you want, satisfy all your desires, you'll never get into trouble. The next minute, their best friend becomes their worst enemy. This is totally Shakespearean. So they understand. But we, the, the, the generations that believe in the Enlightenment are protected generations where the rules were still working enough to protect people from this kind of conflict. So they could afford to be against the rules. You see what I mean? They could afford to be even sacrificed. How could we be? How can we afford to be against sacrifice? What does sacrifice mean? It means if you have a choice between a great deal of violence and very little, you choose the very little. That's a sacrificial violence. So if we think... If you think that I said, we can do it with a sacrifice, you know, immediately, I don't say that at all. I say only Christ did away with sacrifice. But in order to do it with sacrifice, you have to say, well, I don't want the bigger violence, but I don't want the smallest one either. Therefore, I prefer to die myself. 
And if you are able to do that, I congratulate you. But I know that I'm not able to do it. You see what I mean? Therefore, I do not see that I've done away with the sacrificial world. You see, I really think that Jesus gave the recipe for uh, doing away. You know, says, if there is an excessive demand on you, that's what I think the rules, if there is an excessive demand of you, if people, demand, if people slap you, instead of escalating the mimetic rivalry, give up everything and you do away with it. I don't think the rules of the kingdom of God are a form of socialism, you know, or a form of utopia. They are, if they want you to walk a mile with them, walk too. If they want half of your coat, give them. In other words, discourage this sort of inflation of conflict that takes over, you know, when people want the same thing. If they make excessive demands on you, it's that they already are in mimetic rivalry. If you answer the same way, you only escalate. Therefore, in the end, everybody loses. But in order to do that to the end, it would be very easy if everybody did it because nobody would slap anybody on the face. But if no one does it, it means you'll have to die. The good news becomes bad news for the one who says, hey guys, this is what I propose to you. We all give up this rivalry. But it's not a 50-50 proposition, because the 50-50 proposition is what men have always had. And men always feel that it's been violated by the other fellow. Therefore, I take it quite seriously. And whatever you do, I will go on respecting it. You can be sure you'll end up sacrificed that way. I think this is the logic behind the passion. I simplify it, I schematize it. You see, I prefer to die than to take part in that rat race. Therefore, I reveal it as it really is, which we never mention, you know. So, capital punishment. Capital punishment, of course, is a perfect uh, bone of contention, you know. We are very generous, we are against it, and so forth. I'm against it. And I think we live in a world where it proves how dysfunctional it is. But to be, in order to be really against it, you have to say, I'm ready to die instead of the victim. Father Colby in the concentration camp who took the place of a victim. To be very self-righteously against capital punishment in a world where there's an enormous amount of crime and so forth is very easy and very simple. We can be, and I'm against capital punishment, but I cannot indict the people who are for. That's what I mean. You can be against without turning it into a bone of contention and say, oh, these bad people. You see what I mean? Because it's another form of scapegoating. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.